All right, kids, we'll see you in a little bit. Kids three to kindergarten are dismissed. How many of you would say that you know somebody famous? Anybody? Nobody? Someone in the... All right, yeah, one, one. Nobody else. Well, all right. <laughs> I was talking to my wife one time, and uh, she uh, was talking about her uh, experience in Chicago. One time she went down town Chicago with a friend, and they had uh, tickets to see the Oprah Winfrey show when that used to be on. And they went, and regardless of what you think about her, I'm, that's not my point, but my point is actually that they went to this show and they had these instructions for the people in the, in the studio audience, you know, like the ways you need to interact while you're there. And, and if she walks by you, you must not touch her. You know, you may not do that. And, and it just kind of strikes me that, you know, certain people, we have to give instructions on how you interact with them because they're of a certain status. And, and that gets me thinking about what, how we as Christians should view this thing in America called status. Status, if I was going to give a, a definition, I think we have this on the slide here. Status is, uh, according to Merriam-Webster, a position or rank in relation to others. It's a relative rank in a hierarchy of prestige. So, uh, in a nutshell, status is how you compare to other people. And some people have more status th- than others. What is, how does Jesus deal with the topic of status? I want to jump right in this morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And yes, this will connect to Palm Sunday, I promise. So go to Mark chapter 10. And if you would go to verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. It reads like this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they asked, we would want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this passage begins with uh, Jesus and the disciples on the road going to Jerusalem. And you can see the resolution in Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. He's, he's, he predicts his own death. This is the third time in the book of Mark that you see Jesus predicting his death. So the disciples have heard this before. This isn't the first time he's talked about it. So he's saying it, and he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get betrayed. And then he describes what's going to happen to him. They're going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, and kill me. But I will rise again. So so you have this in detail description of of, of the suffering that he's going to undergo. Like he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. There's no maybe this, maybe that. He, He knows they're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me, and they're going to kill me. And that's where I'm going. Now, it might be helpful, because obviously what happens next is, is this very interesting conversation. Because right after Jesus says that, you've got James and John that go up to Jesus, and, and they're like, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm re- you read that and go, you know, this is the way they said it. I mean, isn't that a great way to say it? Jesus, do, we want you to do whatever we want. You know, like he's some sort of genie, you know. And, and, and so Jesus lets him speak. And, and they want to sit on his right and on his left. James and John, apostles, uh, upstanding men. They want to sit on his right. They want the positions of power and authority. They, they want status. That's what they're saying. Now, Jesus has just predicted his death. Just, just predicted it. And the first thing they can think to say after that is, we want status. Check out the other two times when Jesus predicts his death. Would you go a couple pages back? I want you to look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is prediction number one. Mark eight thirty-one says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. I'll say it again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Okay, famous words, and it comes in the context of a prediction. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Three days later, I'll rise, and Peter says, no, no, no. And so Jesus seizes the moment, and, and, and he doesn't make it... Let me say that again. He predicts his death, and when the disciples don't get it, and Peter actually rebukes Jesus, Jesus makes this all about discipleship. He makes it all about how we're supposed to live as Christians, Like he seizes the moment and says, you don't understand. I'm going to die, and what that means is that changes the way you're going to live your life. All right, second prediction. If you would look at the next prediction in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. That should be the same page for some of you. Next page over. Uh, Mark 9, 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee, 
Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. When they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Status. I mean, that's what they're arguing about? Status. we got 12 apostles here. we got the most powerful rabbi we've ever seen. He heals the sick. He casts demons out. And he's our rabbi. And, 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 and he's going to set up a kingdom. I mean, if you go back to chapter 10 now, where we're at for the morning, James and John saying, when you come in your kingdom and in your glory, we want to sit at your right and your left. Now the right... What was the position of like second in power? You know, like that's like the right hand and, and, and the left hand is like the next one down, you know. So right and left are like number one and number two next to the top ruler. And like we want to be right there. Status. And Jesus had just predicted his death. No status, you know. And so, and, and here they are arguing about this. Now, on the one hand, you, you read the question, we want to sit at your right and left in your glory. And you might say, on a positive side, they showed great faith, didn't they? Like they know who Jesus is. He is the king. He's going to be in glory ruling. That's all true. But to sit there and, and to desire those great positions is the wrong way to go about it. And Jesus is trying to make that clear to them. That, that you just don't get it. Now, um, Let's get some context here. Sit at your right, sit at your left. Uh, can we pull that chart up? All right. This is a status uh, chart that shows you uh, in Roman society who was on top. Okay? Now, at the top, you have the imperial domus. Domus meaning house. The imperial house. That's Caesar. You know, the, the emperor, he's on the top. And his house are the patricians, the people that he gives the highest positions of honor and authority. But Caesar is top. And in fact, you know Caesar considered himself to be a god. Next, you have senators. They're the next ones down. Senators had a lot of political power, as you might guess. They had political power to rule. Underneath senators, you have equestrians. They do have their history in the Roman cavalry, you know, the horses. But they became uh, businessmen, wealthy economic rulers, wealthy businessmen, equestrians. Below equestrians, you had a large category you call the commons or the plebeians. The, these, these were the common folk, the bakers, the carpenters, uh, the, the, these common people that made up your middle class of Roman society, the commons. Beneath the commons, you have the freed people. Freed people were formerly slaves, but then they gained their freedom. Maybe their time of service was up, maybe they purchased their freedom, but now they are free and that they're in their own category below the common people, but yet they are, in fact, free. Below the free people, you have slaves. Slaves. 
Uh, slavery was not a racial thing as we think of as the way it was in America. Slavery for them, uh, sometimes you'd even have Roman citizens who would sell their children into slavery to be able to pay bills. They'd get money for it, of course, so they would do that. Uh, sometimes it would be kidnapped sailors, kidnapped people from other foreign lands that would be sold into slavery. So it was a variety of kinds of slaves. It wasn't just based on a race but it was a very real institution of the day. You had slaves. Jesus says now, you want to be at my right and at my left. Now as he's talking to them, he asks them a question back. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to drink? Now, if they're thinking, they should be thinking Old Testament. And we'll talk about that in cross-training. If you want to stay after church, we'll talk about it over here and dive a little deeper into the cups. But um, just, just a summary, there's different cups mentioned in the Old Testament, and, and, and they often contained different things, whether it be favor or wrath or whatever. And so Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath that he's going to drink on the cross. He's referring to suffering, I think, in a very general sense. And so the disciples hear him, and, and James and John say, yeah, we, we can drink that cup. I'm not sure if they even knew what he was talking about. But they agreed that they could drink the cup and be baptized with that kind of baptism. Baptism is immersion. You're immersed in something. And, and you think about being immersed in water. That can be a really good thing, like we think of it today. Uh, to be immersed in water can also be a scary thing when the water rises, you know, and, and, and maybe you can't get out. You know, so there, there's different connotations of baptism as well. We can be baptized like that, they said. He's like, yes, you will, actually. You will. We know about some of John's persecutions, right? Uh, being exiled to Patmos. Uh, we know he was tortured. We, there's some things that went on that they really did suffer. They really did suffer. But Jesus says, I, it's not my thing to give these. Uh, this, is verse, um, this is verse 40. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And then the rest of the disciples hear about it, and they're indignant. Uh, either they don't like the fact that James and John tried to do this and were so prideful, or whether they wish they would have thought of it first, I don't know. But they're indignant with them. And then Jesus seizes the moment and makes it about discipleship again. Just like he did the other time, uh, the, the first prediction, he calls people around and says, yes, <laughs> um, this is about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. He makes the prediction of his death really about the way you and I are supposed to live our life. And so he calls them together and says, you know how the Gentiles are using this chart. I mean, they, they know this. The disciples know this is the way Gentile rulers do their thing. They know Caesar's on top. So what is their question, bottom line question to Jesus? When you were on top as the imperial domus, could we be the patricians in your house? Could we be on your right and your left, old great king that's going to take over for Caesar? You see what they want? I mean, they're probably in the commons area, right? They want to skip equestrian. They want to skip senator. They want to be up there at the top. Status. And Jesus says, actually, you know how it is. Uh, Gentiles lord it over the people below them. They exercise authority over them. 
but not so with you. If you want to be great, if you aspire to be at the top, you've got to flip this chart upside down. Because at the very top are the ones who are slaves to everyone. The ones who serve everyone. And he says, and just so you know, the Son of Man didn't come here to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is a payment. We think of like someone's kidnapped and you've got to pay a ransom. We were kidnapped by sin and death and Jesus paid our ransom to free us from that. So if you flip this chart upside down, that is what Jesus has in mind. You want to be at the top, you've got to be a slave. In fact, I would argue that there's another social category on here that's not listed. I looked online and I looked to see if anyone would even mention this social category, and nobody does. Not that I could find. If you actually go to the bottom of this, below slaves, you could add the category condemned criminal. Right? Because what's worse than a slave? A criminal that's about to be executed. And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to spit on me, mock me, flog me, and kill me. And then the disciples say, we'd like to sit at your right and left side in glory. You don't get it. You just don't get it. You want to be, you want to be at the top? Then you've got to start at the bottom and be the slave of everyone. It's a beautiful picture about status and about humility. So let's make a concluding remark. Sorry. Uh, let's make a concluding remark here. And it should be in your notes if you're taking notes with the ones in your bulletins. Uh, true greatness equals low status, high service. True greatness equals low status and high service in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, when he says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, I mean, Peter's saying, no, you're not going to die. Jesus is saying there is something absolutely satanic about our drive for higher status in our society. There's something absolutely satanic about our desire for greatness in worldly terms. I don't think Jesus is, is uh, rebuking them for wanting to be great in a sense. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is a good thing to desire. You just have to know what you're asking for. Like, do you really know what you're asking for? Do you want to be great in God's sight? Then you've got to start at the bottom and be the slave of everybody. So I don't think the rebuke is not, I don't think he's saying don't want to be great in the sight of God. He's saying don't want to be great by worldly terms. What we say is great. Uh, I was reading some USA Today on how do, we, how do we give status in America today. And they say four or five ways we, we attribute status to people. There's education. There is wealth. There is income. There's occupation. And then there's an interesting one too. They said membership. You know, what organizations you are a member of. 
that's interesting, you know. Um, this is how we attribute status to people. And I'm saying that, that whole thing is satanic. I mean, that whole idea that we can say, you're better than this person, you're greater than this person because you're smarter, you're more educated, you have a bigger paycheck. Really? And Jesus says, that is not the way it works in the kingdom. It's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. True greatness is low status, high service. And so Jesus, what he does here, which is so awesome, is he makes his prediction all about you and me. Are we willing to be associated with a condemned criminal? Are we willing to be associated with someone who serves everyone? Do we want that? Here's two ways that Jesus immediately displays this to the world in a beautiful way. Um, the first one in this passage is in verse 46. They're, they're walking and they meet a man, a blind man named Bartimaeus. And he's sitting by the roadside begging, it says in verse 46. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. You know, blind guy, quiet down. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's getting louder. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. They called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, he said. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. You know, we have lots of stories like this, right? Low status people. Kids had low status. Viewed as property in those days, you know. Low-status kids. You could sell them into slavery if you wished. And yet Jesus embraces them and says, actually, you guys got to enter the kingdom of God like a kid. Low-status. That is the top in the kingdom of God. And so he sees blind Bartimaeus and gives him his sight. And then, right after that, in chapter 11, he goes into Jerusalem tells his disciples to go in and get a, a donkey. And in verse 4, it says, they went and found the colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. They untied it. Some people stand there and ask, what are you doing, untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! save, you know, praise, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. One day Jesus returns on a horse. But this time, he comes in gentleness on a donkey as the prophecy foretold. Do we have the prophecy to put up there? Maybe. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Hosanna means save, having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I know I'm preaching to the choir right now, but I mean, you know Jesus did this to fulfill this prophecy. He did it to do that from Zechariah. He did it to come in a gentle way. One day he will come back to rule and reign. This time he came to save the people from their sins. And no, they didn't get it all the way because less than a week later they're shouting, crucify him. 
And doesn't it make you wonder if status had something to do with those shouts, crucify him. You're not going to free us from Rome. You're not going to be the one that out with you. Look. Teenagers. Let's see some of you here. Following Christ should never be cool. I'll say it in your language, right? Or whatever word you'd use for cool these days. I don't know which one it is, but you know what I mean. Being a Christian is just not cool. There are times, I was reflecting on this last night, there are times when I was doing youth ministry and youth group was over and we've got music, loud music playing, you know, Christian rock music booming. And uh, there are times when, I have to admit, I felt like a, like a rock star almost, you know, like people are listening to me, we're talking, the music's booming. That's a very prideful statement, that's why I'm saying it, so that um, I can reveal something there. And then, and then I'd have students come up to me of perhaps lower status in, in the high school ranking system. Lower status. And they'd want to talk to me about the things they were dealing with. And it would break that pride thing of, of whatever I was feeling at that moment and being so important in the lives of teenagers. It would break that and it would be like, can you just associate with those of a lower ranking in the high school ranks? You know, like just... So I say, I know and I know of many Christians who dress very trendy and are very attractive in appearance. And I'm not saying any judgment on them. Uh, so maybe they can just pull it off. But let me tell you that Christianity is not cool. It's never been cool. Constantine, Roman emperor, tried to make it cool. And God kind of got us in a mess in some ways. It's just not. And so if that enters your thinking, teenager, that how do I relate? Where do I rank? What's my status in this social order here? then Satan is having his way with you, you know? Because Jesus would have you associate with the lowly. He would have you be the servant and the slave. Being a slave is never, ever, ever, ever cool. Never. And yet that's what we're called to be. Now on the one hand, you could say... <laughs> If I take this literally, then Jesus is saying, don't be like a Gentile with power and authority. So that means I should resign as pastor because I have a measure of authority here. I don't believe he's saying that at all. I don't believe he's saying that at all. He's not saying to parents, give up your authority with your kids. Ridiculous. But what he's saying is, I want you to use your power, influence, and ability with a servant's heart. I want everything you to do to be about serving other people. I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's, 
close our time out with two so what's, two applications, okay? First of all, number one, would you stop playing the status game? Would you stop? I mean, how did Jesus not play the status game? I mean, you think about it. The guy didn't have a home. That makes him homeless. He spoke to women. Shouldn't be doing that. Samaritan women, you really shouldn't be doing that. He touched the unclean. You shouldn't do that. He rebuked the religious leaders. Never a good idea socially. He called his own disciples, right? I mean, come on. You know how status worked in that day? You're a rabbi, you're a teacher, and based on your status, people come to you and they want, they, they want to be a follower of you. Please, rabbi, can we follow you? And Jesus, with all of his status, has to find people to follow him. I'm not mocking Jesus here because he does it for a good reason. <laughs> you didn't call me, I called you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. There's something really beautiful about that and deeply theological about that. But just so we're talking about status, we know Jesus rose in status with some people when he did miracles. But then he always said something difficult to disperse the crowds. You know, he always knew what to say to make the group a little bit smaller and get rid of those that were just along for the free bread. Because free bread is cool. Just saying. Free bread is cool. So I don't know what it is for you if it's the clothing you wear, the house that you live in, the, the things that you have fun with, the stuff that you own, the car that you drive, the education that you have, the, the document on your wall that says, I achieved this level of education, the paycheck you have. I don't know what it is that makes you feel good about yourself. But Jesus says, if you really want to feel good about yourself, be a servant. Stop playing the status game. And I don't know how you look at people, but if you look at people anything like I do, I see somebody, and I immediately do the ranking. That's so wrong. And we instinctively do it. Look at how they're dressed. That tells me something about them. Look at their speech. That tells me something about them. Look at the needs they have. That tells No, stop. Just stop. You're, playing, you're doing favoritism, as James says. And as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. That's the quote. It's like James is saying, I don't, feel like, I don't know if I've told you this before, but you, you look at that verse, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. It's like James is saying, underneath it all, you've got two categories of, of beings. You've got Jesus, as believers in Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So you've got Jesus and you've got humans. Those are the two categories. That's it. Well, angels are in there too, of course, but we're not talking about angels this morning. Jesus Humans, period. And the church, we should get this right. We should get this right and stop playing status games. Having said all that about Jesus, you know, his homelessness, the people he talked to, the people he associated with, the sinners, rebuking the religious leaders, do you still dare call him the ideal human? Do you? I mean, is Jesus the example for all of us? Okay, secondly, 
as far as application goes. Would you use your power and your influence for the good of other people? I'm not saying to give up your authority unless God tells you to. Not to give up your power. I don't believe that's the statement here. It's not that the Gentiles, the Gentile rulers are wrong to have power. It's that they lord it over people, he says. They use it for themselves. And Jesus says, no, don't be like that. Use whatever power you've been given to serve people. Have you thought about the difference ever between a servant and a helper? A servant and a helper? Just for the sake of semantics, because I know helpers are servants and servants are helpers. I get that, okay? But for the sake of argument, helpers help people when it's convenient for them. Servants serve people when it's inconvenient for them. Helpers help their friends. Servants serve the people they can't stand. Jesus washing Judas' feet. I'm not saying Jesus despised Judas. I don't know what... He had love for Judas. But Judas was certainly the enemy. Certainly the enemy. Helpers help when they enjoy the work. I like doing this. I like helping. Servants serve when they don't like the work. And it's hard and dirty and difficult and low status. I once uh, did a service trip with with a group of teenagers and uh, we assigned them different things they were supposed to do in, in the city that we were in. And everybody had different tasks. And one guy was uh, doing, serving in a, like, like an office complex, and he was cleaning things and, and organizing things and, and serving people there. And uh, he got back that night after serving. He's like, I don't see what good this is doing. I don't want These people are all educated and highly paid. They're, serve, they're working in this office. Why can't they clean their own office? You know? <laughs> I'm like, you just don't get it. You don't get it. Maybe none of them deserve to have you there serving them for free. But serve them you will. Because you're going to show Christ's love to them. That's what you're going to do. On the last day of that service trip, um, we got together and washed each other's feet. The, leaders, the youth leaders washed the students' feet. And this guy who had such a hard, hard week struggling with, you know, what he thought was important service versus unimportant service. And he just wept during that football. Just just wept during that time. And God was getting a hold of him. Maybe we need to try doing some things that are very lowly and no one will give us credit for and no one else wants to do it. So we can associate with Jesus because none of us would want to carry the weight he carried. I was talking to uh, Barb Belcher, who returned from Uganda recently, and they were doing a service celebrating the opening of um, a home for girls to get education and to have a place to stay. And uh, and I saw some videos that she showed after church last week. And uh, the, the pastor who was associated with our church, give me the name again. Kluth? Right, Pastor Kluth. 
um, was part of this whole thing. And uh, apparently he calls himself a donkey. Is this right? He calls himself a donkey. And I'm thinking, well, that, that's just about right. Hopefully, we all begin to see ourselves as donkeys for Jesus. That is, the means by which he can come in and get praise. Hopefully, we are something that Jesus can use to receive great praise. If you don't know Jesus, um, the good news is none of us deserve to be saved, and yet Jesus served us all by dying on a cross to pay for your sins and mine. He did what none of us could do. Would you consider that this morning and consider giving your life to him? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, hard message for me because I'm so focused on outward and what I see and making value judgments. And I repent and say that it's so wrong. It's so, so wrong. Help me begin to associate greatness with being the lowest, being servant-hearted, doing the things that nobody wants to do, the washing of dirty feet as you did. I know, I know Jesus, we can kind of glamorize that and wash feet for, per, for maybe different reasons today. Maybe glamorize is the wrong word, but, but what we do that without understanding maybe the context of nobody wants to bend down and wash dusty feet that were in sandals all day. May we see the modern counterpart to what that is. And may we do it. Help us be great in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.